have you take your Bibles and turn with me to Second Samuel, book of Second Samuel, chapter three. Verses 1, verses 12, and then don't stone me yet, verses 19 through 28. This is a lengthy reading. I apologize, but I do want to make sure you get the context before I go into the message here. Again, Second Samuel chapter 3, verses 1. We'll skip down to verse 12 and verses 19 through 28. It says this. There's a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Verse 12. It says, And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, Whose is the land? Saying, Also, make thy league with, with me, and behold, my hand shall be with thee, to bring about all Israel in unto thee. Skipping down to verse 19, it says this. Abner also spake to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When when Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Whenever you come in agreement with the king, you're always going to leave in peace. Remember that. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away. He had gone in peace. Again, the second time, it emphasized that he went in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why why is it that you sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out of David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Sarai. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Ishael, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. And for a little while this afternoon, I want to title this message, The Cry of the King. The Cry of the King of the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to be here. God, you've already moved in in the midst, God. I pray right now that you would take this clay, this vessel that I am, God, and 
simply articulate your word to your body, to your people for this moment in their lives and the circumstances and situations that have come into this place, God. I pray right now, Lord Jesus, may it be done for the edification of everyone in here. Lord, may we leave better than how we came. In Jesus, in your precious and mighty name, amen, amen, amen. You may be seated. The Barna Group is a research organization that does studies and research typically around Christian topics and specifically around the church. And about a decade ago, the Barna Group did a, they did a study. Uh, Ten years ago, they did a study. And the study that they did was actually a five-year study on the church. And one of the topics they specifically, they looked at was, was really this. And, and, and it's going to be a little bit of a downer, but the, the question that they were trying to answer is what is it that causes people to leave the church. What causes people to leave the church, specifically young people, people between the ages of 18 and 29, and they boil it down to six reasons, six reasons why people stop coming to church, why they don't, they don't come to church anymore. And before I share the six with you, I'm going to give you a little bit of a disclaimer here. Okay. First and foremost, the six reasons that I'm going to give you, I'm just reporting on them. I'm not endorsing them. I'm just reporting them. Okay. All right. Secondly, the second disclaimer I'm going to give you is that these six reasons do not necessarily reflect our local assembly here. Everybody got that? They're not necessarily a reflection of this local assembly or even the assembly down the road. So don't try to internalize these, scrutinize these, and look around and say, that's you. All right? (laughs) Okay. All right. Six reasons. You put that slide up for me, Christiana. First reason they said is isolationism. Isolationism. One fourth of 18 to 29 year olds say that the church demonizes everything outside of the church. In other words, they meaning they, their feeling is that if you are part of church, you instantly cannot do anything else. Everything else is taboo. Isolationism. The second thing was shallowness. One third called the church boring. About one fourth say faith is irrelevant and Bible teaching is unclear. One fifth say God is absent from their church experience. In other words, there's no depth. There's no application. What you just experienced on a Sunday, okay, or what you experience on a Tuesday night or Thursday night, how does that actually translate into you when you are on your job? How does it translate, young person, when you're in your schools, when you're walking through the hallways? How does it translate into you when you, when you get into your marriages and your relationship? It has no depth. Shallow. Does what we do inside of here on a Sunday that does actually begin to have application when you step outside and when you step into the job interview, when you begin to talk with your peers, when you talk with your coworkers, when you talk with your classmates, the way you look at life, there's perspectives you share on the bus stop when you get into a car. It's shallow. Shallowness. Third, they said it was anti-science. Up to one-third say the church is out of step on scientific developments and debates. Fourth, sexuality. The church is seemed as simplistic and judgmental. Christian singles 
are as sexually active as their non-church friends, and many say that they feel judged. Again, I'm just reporting this now. Remember that. I'm just reporting this. And perhaps the reflection of this is really maybe is that the church has not properly and comprehensively communicated, okay, the Bible's internal and external evidence on what human sexuality should be. That probably is more the issue is that the church as a whole has not properly communicated what does the Bible have to say about human sexuality to an extent that has internal, internal evidence is the Bible, but external evidence is the things that you can find out there, as, as, as the Bible says, even nature does teach you that. Fifth is exclusivity. Three in ten young people feel the church is too exclusive in this pluralistic and multicultural Age. In other words, what is happening is that we are slowly but surely getting into a, well, we are in it, a postmodern age. What that means is that there is no absolute truth. And the church is now entering into a phase in which the culture, everything that's truth, the things that are, are seemingly made sense, are now subjective. They're up to opinion. It's a matter of how you feel. Last one here. Doubters. The church is not a safe place to express doubts. Say one-third of young people and one-fourth have serious doubts that they'd like to discuss. They honestly want to have some discussions about some struggles, some things, some questions about their experience in church. Understand that there's two types of doubters. At some point, you're going to be in one of these camps. There's the cynic and there's the skeptic. The cynic is the individual that says, I do not believe the evidence that has been presented to me. That's the cynic. Okay. There are plenty of cynics and skeptics in scripture. Let me give you an example of the cynic. The children of Israel, when coming out of Egypt, they were cynics. In other words, God had taken them from Egypt and they had seen the plagues hit the Egyptians, but they didn't hit them in Goshen. They saw the Red Sea part. They saw manna come down from heaven. They saw water come from a rock. They saw the, the pillar of fire by night. They saw the cloud by day. And yet when they got, in, it got right at the edge of the promised land, they would not enter in because of a lack of belief. And this is what got God so irritated and agitated and frustrated because they had seen every single thing they could possibly see, and yet they refused to believe. That's the cynic. Now, the cynic is different from the skeptic because what the skeptic simply says, the skeptic says is, I do not have enough evidence to believe. We've all been in, in one, one or two of those camps. The skeptic, in, and let me give you an example. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 17, there was a man, as Jesus went on, up on the Mount of Transfiguration, if you remember this story, he went, took Peter, James, and John up there with him. But down at the bottom, there was, there were some happenings going on. A man that had a demon-possessed son brought his son to the disciples. You remember this story? And, and as, as the story goes, he brought his son to the disciples, and what happened? They couldn't cast the, the, the demon out. They couldn't cast him. So he, just, just imagine this now. He brought him to Philip. Philip couldn't cast him out. He brought him to Bartholomew. Bartholomew couldn't cast him out. He brought him to Judas. Judas couldn't cast him out. Simon. Simon couldn't cast him out. And so this man watches as one by one by one by one. Each of the disciples takes their, takes their liberty to try to cast this thing out. In the name of Jesus, get out of there. And the thing did not come out. 
But the man finally, Jesus comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration, okay, and he brings with him Peter, James, and John. The man runs to him and he says, I brought my son to your disciples, but they could not cast him out. He then utters that, that famous statement that a lot of us, you, you remember this. He says, Lord, I what? I believe helped out what? My unbelief. In other words, what he's simply saying is, look, I have this much faith. You got to help me out here. I simply lack the evidence to believe. What the skeptic is simply saying is, look, the lack of it is not on your part. It's on my part. Everything I've seen thus far has not shown me. You got to help me out here. That's the skeptic. Now, these six reasons that I brought up here, one of the things, and you can slice these and dice these up any which way you want, but the primary thing that I'm going to see this thread run throughout all of these six as to why people leave the church, it's really a matter of safety. It's a matter of safety. People don't feel safe sharing their struggles. They don't feel safe because of a virus. They don't feel safe because of their doubts. They don't feel safe because of their lifestyle. They don't feel safe because they're feeling boxed in. They do not feel safe. We're going to transition back to the opening text because what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a look at a man who died because of his inability to get into a place of safety. Let's transition back to opening text. Second Samuel chapter three begins like this. It says, now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David waxed stronger and stronger and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. I touched on this last month, but, but what we're going to do is we're going to see here. There's a, there's a shift that's taking place and there's a, there's a transition. One kingdom is going out. Another is coming in. One kingdom is building up. The other kingdom is breaking down. One kingdom is beginning to falter, and another kingdom is beginning to fly. And the question I have for us this morning is, whose kingdom are you a part of? Whose kingdom are you a part of? Is your kingdom about building your own brand, your own label, or are you a part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Whose kingdom are you a part of? Whenever there's a kingdom change, you're going to notice there's friction, there's fighting. And in your lives, some of you are in the midst of a kingdom change. There's a shift taking place. One king is on his way out, and the other king is on his way in. And a question I have for you is, which king is coming into your life this afternoon? Put up the next slide. Second Samuel chapter three begins by telling us there's this war. Okay. But what I want to call out is that Saul is actually dead at this point. Does everybody get that? Saul is dead. Saul is not alive. Okay. But in the middle of this passage, and this is what's going to be our focal point this afternoon, there's one man that's still holding things together for the house of Saul. It's a man by the name of Abner. Abner. Now, Abner was Saul's general. He was his dog, his right-hand man, the head of his armies. Abner's still at the middle of this thing, and he's holding this thing together. It's Abner. Now, what I want to also point out, the fact is that Abner has a sense of who David is. 
He has a sense of who David is. He understands who David was. Abner also knows that he is on the losing side. Abner realizes that the kingdom of David is slowly advancing and that he is on the weaker side. And so Abner is still holding this thing together. And here's what I'm going to make some application again this afternoon is that a lot of times, okay, we're just like Abner. A lot of times we're just like Abner. Anybody here ever play chess? I got any chess players in here? Yeah. Antoine, you, you know when you play chess and, and there's that point in time where you, you, you have your opponent defeated and you've taken all their pieces and it's just a matter of time, right, Kendall? It's just a matter of time. But they have that one power piece that's still on the board and they're slowing down the progress. And they move that rook and they move that knight all over the place and it's a defensive match at that point. But you know it's just a matter of time. Abner is the last power piece that's still standing on the board holding back the advancement of the kingdom of David. And so as we pick up this scene, we find that Abner is still in the mix. Okay, But here's what I want to get at this afternoon is a lot of times we are like Abner. What I mean by that is that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is looking, the Son of David is looking to do a work in your life. But what's really holding things up from you being transformed and conformed is you. What's really stopping the advancement of the kingdom of David in your life from God doing a complete takeover and a revolution is you. It's you and I. Okay. But here's a dynamic that I want to begin to call off this afternoon. And this is very important is that Abner was no stranger who David was. In fact, I want to even tell you is despite that is every encounter. And if you can find some that's not of what I'm going to tell you, please call me out on it. Every encounter that Abner had with David was favorable. Every encounter that Abner had in scriptural had always been favorable. When Goliath came into the camp and he came to defy the, the armies of the living God and nobody would stand up to fight. Everybody remember that. Not one man would stand up to fight him at all. Okay. Nobody. I've heard some teachers even tell you that Saul himself should have been out there fighting that giant in the valley. But Saul didn't even fight it. But if you take a look, there was another man that failed to fight, and it was Abner. Instead, what happened is they let this little boy run down to that valley all by himself. All he had was five stones, and he he slayed that giant. He put him on his back, and the Bible says in first, I think it's it's first Samuel chapter seventeen, verse fifty-seven. The Bible says is that Abner himself was the one that presented David to Saul with Goliath's head in his hand. Abner knew who David was. From that point in time in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 5, it tells us that David's military career began to accelerate to the point where Saul promoted him to seemingly a captain. David was a rising star in Abner's army, an army that Abner oversaw. Abner knew who David was. When the tide began to turn and the relationship between David and Saul broke down and Saul got into a jealous rage, okay, he was chasing David all over the countryside, Abner was there. In fact, two times, two times, okay, and all the running all throughout the countryside, David had an opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't take it. And in one of those opportunities, he actually yelled down to Abner and said, I could have killed your king on your watch. Abner knew who David was. 
And yet David had extended to a mercy and grace. Understand the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. In both of those instances, Abner knew who David was. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 23, the Bible says that Saul's mental state took a drastic turn and drastic down spiral. But they brought a man in to, 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 to play the harp, to, to, to soothe the soul of the king. They brought in a man by the name of David. And this is not in scripture, but just hear me out. Give me a little bit of liberty. I have no doubt that Abner knew that David was brought in to soothe the heart of this king. Here's why I'm bringing this up. Is many of us, many of us are just like Abner. Your lives at some point in time is intersected with the son of David, the king of kings. He's defeated giants in your life. He's defeated obstacles for you. You've seen him move. You see his presence drive away times and points and times where a word has been spoken over you when you were in some dark periods and somebody said a word into your ear in a a prayer. You've seen his mercy and you've seen his grace. Looking back, many of us in here can say we, all of us in here can say we should not be here. That we should be in a prison somewhere. I should be dead. I should be in a hospital bed somewhere. Jesus has been there every step of the journey. Even when you and I were not a part of his kingdom. But Abner comes to a place in his understanding in which he realizes the kingdom of David is getting stronger and the kingdom of Saul is only growing weaker. And so here's what he does. He does the right thing and he begins to make, make, make arrangements to, to, to change over kingdoms, to switch. And I'm, I'm going to ask this question this afternoon. Is, is there anybody in here that's ready to switch kingdoms? Is there anybody in here that's tired of living under the old king? Is there anybody in here that says, that old king has been, he hasn't done me any good. I need a new king. I need a king that's going to be peace. A king that's going to be giving me tranquility. A king that I can rely on. A king that I can count on. A king that's dependable. A king that's going to give me safety. I'm ready to switch kingdoms. If there's anybody in here that's ready to switch kingdoms, I'm going to tell you three things toward the end of this message that you need to do just like Abner. You need to make arrangements in your life to change over. To give, go from one king to another king. And so the Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 20, it says, So Abner came to Hebron and 20 men with him, and David made Abner and the men that were with him a feast. Abner's going to meet David at this place called Hebron. And it's at this place he's going to discuss handing over the kingdom to David. Now, I need to tell you about Hebron so you get some context here. Can you pull up that map, Christiana? There were 48 Levitical cities in the Old Testament, okay, meaning these were cities that were given to the Levites. The Levites were the priestly tribe that were really responsible for the administration of the ministry during the Old Testament times for the children of Israel. They got 48 cities. They didn't get an inheritance. They got cities. That's what they got. Now, six of those cities were what you deemed as refuge cities, six of them, okay? That's where the dots are. What the refuge cities were is in the event if you were ever involved in a situation in which you killed somebody, you killed 
killed somebody. Maybe uh, you, you didn't mean to do it on purpose. It was manslaughter. You chopped down a tree. The tree fell on somebody, and they did. Okay, you needed somewhere to run. Okay. You could run to one of these refuge cities. If it was another event, let's say it was, it was, it was self-defense. Somebody came into your house. They meant to attack you. Okay. And you had to fight them off and to, to protect your family and they died. You could run to one of these cities and you would be safe from the avenger. David is going to meet Abner at the city called Hebron. It's the bottom city right here. Now understand this. And this is, this is part of this message is really pulled from a lot of what, what Pastor Chris preached on about two weeks weeks ago, but in this city, this were cities of safety. There were cities of safety. Okay. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is what? Strong tower, the righteous run into it and are saved. And what's the name of the Lord? What's the name? Jesus. I know I'm talking to people of the name. The name is Jesus. So everything that you need, all the safety that you need is in Christ. You get that. Everything that we need to be safe, to be full, to be whole, it's, it's all found in Christ. You get that. You get that. All of these cities were simply types and shadows in the Old Testament. These are real cities now. But what they were do, what they were is they were types and shadows that were pointing the way to Jesus Christ. You understand that. But here's what I want to present to you this, this afternoon. The extension of that safety is the church. The extension of God's safety is the church. It's the church. It's the body of Christ. It's this, it's this collection of people that you meet on a week. It should be, it should be, I hope you're not just meeting here every week. It should be throughout the week. Okay. It should be, it's, it's, it's both corporate, both formal, but also informal. It's not either or, it's both. Okay. And, and so the, the church is an extension of, of God's safety. And, and when this is, this is, this is how this gets going. Iron sharpens iron. When Pastor Cre- uh, Chris began to preach, he touched on three variables that, that we define safety by. Do anybody remember those three variables? Availability, reliability, and capability. So what we do is whenever we want to determine if something is safe or not, we, we say, is it reliable? Is it available? Is it, is it capable? And, 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 and what he did, he did a marvelous job of, 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 of putting this together and identifying how, how God is, meets all three of those attributes. He's both available, he's reliable, and, and he's capable. Okay. But, but as I, as I listened to his, 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 his message, there, there, another question began to come up. And, and, and because he, essentially he's saying to us is that can this, this is how you and I know that we can trust God. We got trust issues. That's what we have. But when he laid it all out, he identifies the fact is because he's available, because he's reliable, and be, because, he's, because he's capable, we can trust God. But here's the question that began to burn inside of me. Because as we ask this question to God, maybe we better turn around this morning is we ask, can we trust God? But maybe God's asking, can I trust you? We question God and say, can I trust you? But God is maybe turning around and says, can I trust you? And that's not an original thought. That's from another message. But but God is asking today in this assembly, can I trust you? Can I trust you? And we're going to take the same criteria that we looked at God with. And now we're going to look at you on. You and I on. So I'm not. 
If I could. Okay. We're going to take the same criteria and analyze ourselves. Are you available? Are you available? Are you available for God to work in you and through you? Many of you here right now, God wants to do a work through you. God wants to change some places through you. God wants to go into General Mills, Antoine, and he wants a Bible study started there. Can God start it through you? Are you available? Are you available, young people? Can God all of a sudden get it? Can, can, can God, can we get a Bible study? Can we get a good prayer meeting if faith was in here at Rufus King? The high schools are already talking about diversity. They're already talking about diversity. Why not bring in Jesus? They already got every club up there. In the, in every, every club. Why not bring in the club of Jesus in there? Are you available? Are you available in Milwaukee Public Schools? Many of us right now, God is looking out and he's, we're asking God to do a work. I'm not waiting for Asbury Revival. I'm not waiting to bring in another preacher. The revival starts with you. It starts with you. Who's going to reach them? You are. You're going to reach them. Are you available? What we do is we want to wait for send a preacher to have a revival service. I'll invite you next week. You're the church. You go into your communities. You go into your neighborhoods. You go into your places of work. You go into your schools. You start the Bible study. You start the revival. You start the fire. I wish somebody, as the prophet Isaiah said, here I am, Isaiah 6, 5, send me, send me, Lord, send me. I'm not waiting for nobody else. Here I am, send me. You want to see the change? God's going to make the change come through you. I'm going to tell you a reason we're not available for God to work through us. You know the reason why we're not available for God to work through us? is because for many of us, God can't work through you because he hasn't been working in you. God cannot work through you until he's worked in you. Okay. Hear me now, because Isaiah 6, 5, this is the Bible says the prophet Isaiah put his hand up and said, here I am, Lord, send me. That's Isaiah 6, excuse me, that's Isaiah 6, 6, 8, sorry, 6, 8, thank you, 6, 8, thank you. But if you go back three verses before that, okay, Isaiah also put his, his, his hand up, Isaiah 6, 5, he says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. In other words, what he's simply saying is, I've messed up just like everybody else I'm representing. God, I need you to, to do a work inside of me. I need to be a better husband. I need to be a better father. I need to be a better coworker. I need to be a better pastor. I do your work in me first, okay? In me first. Ephesians 3.20, it says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh where? In us. In us. If you question why there doesn't seem to be any power working around you, first ask yourself, is the power working in you?
The, the reason, the reason I believe that, you know why we have such a small perspective of what, what can happen in our world around us? You know why we feel so defeated when you go in your job and when you go into places and you say God is not here and he's not operating, he's not moving? You know, you know, you know why? You know why you get into places and you get, get down, you get frustrated, and you say, man, all these people heathens here. Okay. The reason, the reason why we have such a small, we put, we have such a small perspective on what God can do is because he is not working in you. If he was working in you, on a mighty degree, you'd be like, "Woo! I know what he did for me. <laughs> I know he can tear this place up. Oh man, I, I know I was a mess. <laughs> but but uh, but but if he if he if he did this to me, all y'all better come in here. Come get some of this, okay? Woo! If with if, if he is working in you, if he is working in you, then you got oh you got no no qualms about this. Man, he took me up and turned me around. Oh man, oh wow." Whoa, whoa, but, but we have such a small perspective, small, and that's why, that's why, small perspective, small God, you got big, when he's doing big things inside of you, he's going to be a big God through you. Are you available? The second is, are you reliable? Can God trust you to do what he's already directed you to do? Hear me now. This is not a, I want to repeat this. Um, theologically, we are not a works-based church. Nothing you can do is going to get you into heaven. It's already done. Hear me now. I'm going to repeat that. We're saved by grace, not works. Not works. Lest any man should boast. But hear, hear, hear this now. I'm going I'm to bring this full circle comprehensively. Okay. God is not going to do what he's already told you to do. God will do what you can't do, but he's not going to do what he's commanded you to do. Are you reliable? Will you do what God has asked you to do? God is not going to, hey, God is not going to throw the pornography out for you. You got to do that yourself. God is not going to stop you from going down to the clubs. You got to hang up on some folks. You've got to put down the cigarettes. You've got to tell some folks, I, I won't be going back there anymore. I got a, I, I've got a new king. God is not going to do that for you. He will convict you. He will speak to you, he will call you, he will woo you, but he will not do it for you. Are you capable? Are you capable? Philippians 4.13 says, now I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The honesty reality of his God's trusting in people that are trusting in him. God is trusting in people that are trusting in him. And so the question I have for this, this afternoon, church, is, is are we safe? Are we safe? The first problem in, in, in us being safe is, is understanding that God is looking to establish his kingdom right inside of me, of you, of us. The problem is it's not out there. It's not. It's, problem is it's, it's not in my spouse. It's not in your boss. It's not in your coworker. The problem is right here. 
The biggest problem is this joker holding the microphone, standing at you. That's not, that's not the problem. Nobody out there is a problem. This is the biggest problem right there. This is the problem why people don't feel safe is because of me right here. I got to hurry. Get back to the text here. The Bible says Abner meets with David where he agrees to transfer over the kingdom. And he leaves, he makes all the necessary arrangements, and Abner leaves Hebron. Remember, Hebron was the place of refuge of safety. Abner left Hebron, and he had, he had in his intent, his mind was set like flint, and he was going to start making moves. He was going to start talking to all the movers and shakers in Israel to begin to bring the kingdom under one king. And the Bible says that he goes forward to do so. He goes forward to do so. Okay, everything is all right. Everything looks as if Israel is going to be unified under one king, and the war that's happening will stop. And it would be good if we could just stop the story right there, right? It would be perfect if we could just stop the story right there. The kingdom is going to be unified under one king. But that's not the end of the story. Because into the mix steps a man by the name of Joab. Now, Joab, and, and let me let me give you some backstory on Joab. Joab is actually David's general, the general of his army. And he is by far the one of the most contentious men you will ever read about in Scripture. Joab is, I'm going to just put it, dirt, Joab is a dirty dog. Straight up. He's a dirty dog. When you read some of the stuff this dude did, this dude is dirty. Dirty. Let me let me provide some 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 more more context of it. Okay, uh, if you don't know by now, and this is mentioned before in Scripture, during the long war between Saul and David, one of the ba- in one of the battles, Abner was actually retreating, riding on his horse, and Eshehu, who was Joab's younger brother, began chasing Abner down. And as the story goes, Abner told him to get back, leave, leave, but Eshehu would not do it. And in the fight, jo- Abner actually kills Eshehu. He didn't do it on purpose. It was in self-defense. And so here's kind of the, the, the section we come to now. Is that Abner has left Hebron. He's about to make arrangements to turn the kingdom over. But Joab comes late to the party and he realizes that the opposing general has made peace with his king. And he begins to accuse David and says, what, what did you let Abner leave for? And so Joab does, does, does this the, the dirtiest thing ever is he sends messengers to call Abner back. Call him back. He's on his way to do the king's bidding, but Joab sends messengers to call him back. And as the story goes in scripture, brother Joe, can I borrow you for a second here? The story goes is that Abner, on his way to do the king's bidding, turns back around and goes back and says, sees what, what is it Joab had to talk to him about? Joab being the dirtball that he is. The Bible says he took Abner aside right outside the gate of Hebron. Remember what I told you about Hebron? He drove his sword inside of his... Sorry, bro. Sorry. Sorry, bro. 
In the name of Jesus, he rises. He takes his sword and he drives it into Abner's fifth rib, and there he dies. Here's the tragedy in this is Abner dies perhaps 10 to 20 feet outside of the city of refuge. He was literally 10 to 20 feet from being in a city where he would have been safe in the city where the king was. David was there 10 to 20 feet. It's a shame. Someone here, let's make some application. Many of you in here, you've just gotten baptized. You've just got the Holy Ghost. You've just come back into the church. Be wary of those voices that are calling you aside, that are calling you back, that are calling you to the left, that are calling you to the right. Be wary. If you're getting about your business and you're doing the king's business, I'm going to arrange some stuff. I'm throwing out some stuff. I'm getting rid of these cigarettes. I'm getting rid of this weed. I'm getting rid of these drugs. I'm getting rid of all this. If you're going about your business for the king, do be wary of folks that try to call you back and try to talk to you. You ain't got nothing to talk to me about right now. I'm doing the king's business right now. Be wary of folks. Folks always want to talk about what's wrong with the church. Somebody, somebody talk about what's right with the church. Okay. Somebody always want to talk about something that is wrong. Okay. Always want to call out what's, I don't go to that church. I heard about this. I heard about that. Why don't you come in here and get a taste for yourself? Folks always want to take you out of something, but they don't ever want to take you into nothing. They easy call you out of something. Come out of there. Where are you taking me to? Be wary of those voices in your life when you have your face set like flint to do the work of the Lord and you are turning over kingdoms. Be wary of those voices that are calling you aside. Joab had deeper agendas for killing Abner. It wasn't just jealousy and bitterness. The second motive that, and I'm going to, I'm going to rush here. The second motive is, is not explicitly stated in scripture, but the second motive was jealousy. It was jealousy. Some of you encounter jealousy. You see, the other factor was that Abner was, was advancing forward and he had the favor of the king. And Abner's advancement was a threat to his position. He was the opposing general. He felt he was going to be replaced. And whether or not that would have happened or not, we don't know. That's only speculation. But what I want you to consider here is that anytime there's unification in the body of Christ, there's, there's no need to be jealous. Anytime there's addition, anytime there's, there's, there's advancement, anytime people got the body of Christ gets unified, okay, all, the only thing that means is that the gospel will spread faster. Okay? That's all that that means. 
I, I want you to, I want you to consider this because this isn't how the world operates. Because when you incorporate America, it's always about who can do something better. If somebody's faster, they can sing better, they can preach better, they can teach better, and you're easily replaceable. That's how we feel in the world. And so we always have to step on somebody else to maintain our status. But in the kingdom of God, it does not operate like that. Okay. If another preacher comes in here that can preach far more than me, fine. That gospel's still gonna go because I gotta go preach in the corner. Okay. I gotta go preach in the corner. You have to understand the kingdom of God, it's not about who's better because what God says is, look, if I have two preachers I can preach, if I got ten people that can sing, iron sharpens iron. Okay. I don't, God doesn't throw out his old knives, he sharpens them. He doesn't get rid of his old knives, he sharpens those old knives to get them together. The mistake that we make is we think in the church if somebody comes in and they have a little bit more, they got a little bit more voice, they got they got a little bit more lungs, pipes a little bit better. Oh, Sister Brownie wants me to go down and sit down there now. No, there's a place for you. There's always a place for you in the kingdom of heaven. There's always a job for you. There's always a job for you. Jealousy will destroy the kingdom of heaven. Just so you understand that I'm not, I'm not making this up, okay, about this jealousy factor with Joab. Sometime later, another war is going to occur. And this time, the leader of this rebellion is a man by the name of Absalom. Absalom is actually, he's David's son, okay? And, and, and Absalom leads this rebellion. And, and the Bible says that that in, 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 the, in the battle between Absalom and David's forces, Absalom came up on the wrong end of the stick. And as the story goes, Absalom's retreating on the donkey. But Absalom had long hair. And the story goes, his hair got caught in a tree while the donkey kept going. And so he's suspended in midair, okay, while his donkey... He has fled him. Joab and David's forces catch up with Absalom. And despite the decree that the king had given, David had already said, do no harm to my son. Don't do anything to him. I love him with all my heart. I know he didn't mess up royally, but do no harm. It was a directive that he had given his entire army very explicitly. But as the story goes in scripture, Joab took three arrows and killed them. Ruthless. And when you get into the context of the scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 25, this will give you some context of maybe why he killed Absalom. It says, and Absalom put Amasa in command of the army instead of of Joab. The way the scripture puts this, it's a potential indicator that Joab was on a short list of candidates to potentially be a general in the rebellion. And he lost out. We automatically assume that Joab was on David's side the entire time. No. It says that when the Bible scripture, understand the scripture doesn't use words, it mints them. If a word is in there, it's in there for a purpose. Absalom put Amas in command of the army instead of Joab. That means that Joab was a potential. Jealousy will destroy the kingdom. If you've had not had enough of this, I'm going to give you some more. One more. You ready for this one? David had had enough of the war. 
It had ripped the nation apart. This is the second civil war that he had been a part of. The king had had enough. And the Bible says in, in 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 13, it says, say to Amasa, the commander of Absalom's troops, are you not bone? Are you not my bone and my flesh? May God do to me and more also, if you will not be the commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. So David, in the midst of this civil war, his son has already died. Joab killed his son. What David does, he takes Amasa, who is the general of Absalom's army. Is somebody following me? You still following me here? He takes the, the, the general of, of Absalom's army and he replaces Joab with Amasa. Oh. You know what's coming, don't you? <laughs> you know who's coming, don't you? Second Samuel chapter 20, verse 8 through 10. Second Samuel 20, 8 through 10. I want you to read this now. This is three. It says, now Joab was wearing his military uniform, and over it he had a belt with a sheathed sword strapped about his hips. And he went forward, it fell out. Joab said to Amasa, Joab meets Amasa, is it going well with you, my brother? And with his right hand, Joab took hold of Amasa by the beard as if to kiss him in greeting. But Amasa was off guard and not attentive to the sword in Joab's hand. So Joab struck Amasa in the abdomen with the sword, spilling his intestines to the ground. Without another blow, Amasa died. Joab is just killed in his reign. He killed Abner. He killed Absalom. He killed Amasa. Jealousy will do that. The scary part about this is that when you take a look and break down Abner's name, it's the father of light, Abba, father, Abba, Abba's father. He kills Absalom, whose name is father of peace. Jealousy will destroy the kingdom. It will destroy the church. If there's any root in here that we need to get rid of, church, it's jealousy. It's jealousy. Let's stand. The king, David, after Abner's death, same Abner, or excuse me, same, same Joab, dirty Joab. Bible says that after Afterward, when David heard it, he makes a decree. He makes a cry. He says, I and my kingdom are guiltless before the Lord forever from the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. So, so when, when David hears about what, what took place, what went down, he realizes the optics on this. You know what the optics are? How this is going to look to everybody else. Woo! That David is a smooth dude. Okay, that David can do some things. He realizes the optics on this don't look good at all. He'll, he'll, he'll go to Hebron and invite you there and send his general out and do you in. 
But, but, but David realizes that this was not my intent. This was never my motive. This is not what I intended to do. I, I, I didn't, I didn't mean to do this at all. And he says, I, me, and my kingdom, the people that are around me are guiltless. The kingdom means the king's domain where the king lives. We're guiltless. This isn't how we operate. David immediately makes it plain that this was not his plan. This wasn't his purpose. And what I'm meaning to say to somebody in here today, somebody in here that's experienced church hurt, someone has experienced, maybe you've been hurt by somebody associated with the church. Maybe you've been hurt by some situation around the church. Maybe you've been hurt by something that you that wasn't part of the church, but you took it. What I'm trying to communicate is that the son of David today is still crying out and telling you, this was not my intent. I, I never meant to hurt you. This, this was never my, the king of kings is saying, whatever's hurt that you've experienced, maybe within this setting or maybe within another setting, he's, he's crying out and says, this is not a part of my kingdom. It was, it was, it was never part of my kingdom. This is not how I operate. If you've come here this morning, hear the cry of the king. He's saying, I want to make peace. It's legitimate peace. There's been immunity between you and I. You've got a life, a lifestyle that's against me, but, but I'm here this morning to bring peace to you. No, 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 no tricks. I'm not here to shame you. I'm not here to embarrass you. I'm not here to do anything like you. I'm here to bring you peace. The king is calling, calling you. Anyone here in here that's been hurt to peace. I, I'm looking to bring you for the first time a peace, a peace that, a real experience of peace. A real experience of joy. Real hope. Anybody ever want real hope? Something you can hope in that's actually going to come true? Not fake hope. If, if you're in here this, this afternoon, you've never experienced real peace, real joy, real hope. I'm going to invite you up to this altar. Or you can accept that proposal. And that acceptance is going to be on three things. I told you three things. First, first thing is Repentance. You got to come to a place where you proclaim that, hey, I need, I need a savior. I need a savior. I, I need to be under a different king, under a different king's domain. The second thing is, is baptism. The Bible says that you're baptized for the remission, the wiping away of your sins. It, it's, it's, it's the thing that begin to acknowledge that I, I was at war against the king, but now, now, now I'm not. All that stuff is under the blood. After baptism, once you've done what he's directed you to do, the Bible says that God, God will fill you with his spirit. That's what God will do. You can't do that. God will fill you. But the, but the third thing I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you here this, this afternoon is stay in the church. Stay in the church. Stay in the place of refuge. Stay in the place where there's hope. Stay in the church. 
The king is crying out to you this afternoon. If you've been hurt, stay in the place of refuge. This altar is open.